If you would, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. The last two Sundays we've been in 1 Samuel and I thought that we would continue and look at Saul, the first king of Israel, and particularly his failure to obey God's commands. I really hesitated, I was somewhat reluctant, because when it comes to application, oftentimes when you have these Old Testament stories, people make all sorts of wild applications, like this is what happened and therefore make sure you don't do this. And I think we'll miss the point. In what we're going to look at today, the primary point is obedience, and that Saul failed to be obedient to God's commands. We find two particular incidents, one here in chapter 13, and then we'll look at chapter 15, which are marked by his disobedience. We may be distracted by other issues, but I think they all tie into this basic principle that he disobeyed God. Now, just to review what we saw last week in uh, chapter 12, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. Samuel was the judge who was governing if we could use that word, they said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. As we saw last week, Israel's decision was we want to be like everybody else. We we want to have a king. And as we saw tying in the the first two lessons in 1 Samuel, their solution was political. Uh, Previous to this, their solution had been religious. They were worshipping Baal and Ashtoreth, gods of fertility. Yeah, they believed that God was up there somewhere, but when it came to the day-to-day things, getting through life, they needed these false gods. In a sense, they have now pushed these gods aside, but in their place, they have put the idea of a king. They want a political solution to their problems. So they said to Samuel, give us a king. Samuel was very displeased by this, but we read, The Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt unto this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Uh, Not to review everything we've looked at, but we live in two dimensions, if you wish. We have the eminent, that which is here and now, and then we have the transcendent. Or we have the ultimate and then we have the penultimate. And I think God's people generally throughout history have always seen God as transcendent. But when it comes to the day-to-day things, they're not quite so sure. Uh, For one thing, he can't be manipulated. You see, uh, when you pray to God, God may say yes, but he may say no. And if you want a yes answer every time, then God isn't the route to take, so to speak. Science, and we live in a scientific age, when you do an experiment and you want a particular result, you know how to do it. Magic is sort of the same way. You do these things and then you come out with the desired result. God doesn't always give us the desired result. And so, yeah, we'll come to church on Sunday and we'll sing and you know pray and all that, but when it comes Monday through Saturday, we've got to take care of ourselves. And this is what Israel is doing. They no longer want God to be their king. They want a human king that they can see. And hopefully, if they want, they can manipulate him to get the things that they want. So in chapter 12, we have Samuel's farewell address. 
And then at the end of the chapter, we see that all of Israel embraced Saul as their king. They confirmed Saul as a king or as king in the presence of the Lord. And they lived happily ever after. Uh, Not exactly. Now we come to chapter 13. This happens about two years after what we see at the end of chapter 12, where Saul is confirmed. Saul is king, but the Philistines are still a problem. And reading in between the lines, one could say that Israel at this point is sort of a vassal to the Philistines, because if you read the chapter carefully, they're not allowed to have weapons. Well, who could tell you not to have weapons unless it's a power greater than yours? And so the Israelites, in a sense, are under the domain uh, under the dominion of the Philistines. Saul does have an army of 3,000 men, 2,000 with him and 1,000 with his son, Jonathan. Um, Jonathan is always taking in the initiative. And if you read through this passage, this is where the beginning of it, where he decides, yeah, I'm going to take on the Philistines, which one might argue is not the smartest thing to do. Um, look at verse number two of chapter 13. We'll be doing a lot of reading, so bear with me. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Uh, Jonathan has provoked a very powerful enemy, and now they're either going to suffer the consequences or they can stand up and fight the Philistines. So verse number five, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Well, this is not what they were expecting. I don't know what they were expecting, but the result is fear, deep-seated fear. Verse number six. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical, that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead as they went uh, east. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Now at this point, we are sort of given a flashback, something we didn't know at this point, that Samuel had told Saul, I'm going to meet you in seven days. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And this opens the door to Saul's act of disobedience. Verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering, and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. 
Samuel makes it clear that Saul has disobeyed the Lord. He did not keep the command that the Lord had given him. What exactly is that command? Well, Saul is now the king of Israel, but he is not a prophet and he is not a priest. Um, Those in authority oftentimes sort of like the authority and oftentimes go beyond the boundaries that are set for them. This is what Saul had done. It is not his place to offer sacrifices. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He is not a Levite. He is not a priest. And Samuel said he acted foolishly. Now, I want to make something clear at this point. Saul's sin was not that he did not wait, per se. There are times when we are supposed to wait. That wonderful verse in Isaiah 40, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount out with, with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. But there are times when we are not to wait, when we are supposed to act. In Exodus chapter 14, when the Israelites were at the Red Sea and they're surrounded by mountains and Pharaoh and his troops are behind them, their situation seems helpless. So Moses told the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In other words, just wait, just stand there. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. There's a time when you're supposed to stand and yes, we'll wait for God to deliver us. There are other times when you need to do something. I would never want to use 1 Samuel 13 as a passage to say, impatience, you know, not waiting is in and of itself wrong. That is not the sin that Saul committed. The sin that he committed was acting outside the calling that God had given him. We see this, by the way, centuries later in another king, the King Uzziah, whom we usually think of in very favorable terms, who helped bring about a revival to the people of Judah. But in 2 Chronicles 26, we read, But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. It's not his job. This belongs to the Levites. Azariah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted him and said, It is not right for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord our God. Uzziah, who had a censer, that is the thing with the incense in it, uh, in his hand ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence, before the incense altar of the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. And Uzziah spent the rest of his life as a leper in a separate house. He died of leprosy. He thought because he was king in a position of authority, that meant he had all authority, authority in every domain. Um, This is what Saul does. I'm the king. I can do the sacrifice. Samuel's not here. He said he was going to be here. Seven days have passed. He takes things into his own hand. His own hands. And anyway, there are consequences that will come for this. 
And at verse 14, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. The fact that Saul had disobeyed the Lord, I think, is reinforced by the explanation or the rationale that he gives to Samuel. He blames others for his actions. There was a crisis which required him to act. The Philistines are coming and there's just a lot of them. He needs to do something. The men were scattering. Morale is low and so to get the guys to unite and pumped up to go into battle, he needed to do this. Samuel didn't show up when he said he was going to. Um, It's his fault. He was late. Shame on him. But interestingly enough, we go back to what we saw earlier in 1 Samuel. God is seen as a good luck charm. And here God needs to be appeased. I can't go into battle unless I've sort of given a sacrifice and said, you know, God bless us as we go into battle. He said, I I had not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Just a side note, it's been my experience, I just observed that oftentimes when people blame others for their actions, ultimately, if you follow, if you trace it out, it will end up with God. He is the one who gets blamed for the wrong that we do. This is the first incident in which we find Saul disobeying God. Interestingly enough, if you read the rest of the chapter and in chapter 14, Israel wins a great victory over the Philistines and against their other enemies. Uh, at the end of 14. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He was victorious. This doesn't mean, this doesn't cancel out chapter 13. It doesn't mean that, yeah, don't worry about it. You disobeyed me, but that's okay. Rather, I think we should take it to sign up God's grace and God's mercy. Now we come to chapter 15, and this is the second, and perhaps the better known of Saul's disobediences. Um, It involves the Amalekites. We'll be reading a lot here, bear with me. The first two verses, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel, so listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. So backstory to this incident. It, it's recorded in Exodus chapter 17 and then a, a briefer version is found in Deuteronomy 25. Israel comes out miraculously out of slavery and then through the Red Sea. They're not yet to Sinai. They're somewhat, I would say, disorganized. And this is the time when the Amalekites decide we're going to attack these people. They don't know about fighting. They've been slaves. Uh, You have a bunch of women and children. This is a perfect time to kill them and to take whatever it is they have. So Moses said to Joshua, this is from Exodus 17, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought against the, or fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, and this is important, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Remember this this story as a child in Sunday school, thinking that somehow there was something magical. You know, when Moses held his hands up, they were winning, and then when his hands came down, uh, the Amalekites were winning. Now, this is a posture of prayer. Hands were raised to heaven, and so there's a real awareness that the victory will belong to God, and they look to God with raised hands to provide the victory. More than that, in connection with what we're looking at in First Samuel 15, God basically made a promise that one day he would take vengeance on the Amalekites. So he tells Moses, write it on the scroll. I I want people to remember this. The abbreviated form is found in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you, around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So here is, again, the promise of future retribution. This is the background to this incident. The time has now come. They have a king. They have peace. Saul has defeated their enemies. And now it's time to take care of business something that happened centuries before, God hasn't forgotten. He doesn't want his people to forget. They are now to do what God commands. Verse 3, 1 Samuel 15. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went up to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you along with them, for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to east of Egypt. And now comes the disobedience, verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. Those they were unwilling to completely destroy, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. I want to point out something. Saul killed everybody except Agag the king, that is in terms of human life. So the problem that he has is not with the harshness of God's command. I would say for me, that's the issue. When God says, okay, Damon, I want you to go over here and kill everybody. 
men and women, boys and girls, just kill them all. Um, I actually had to correct my notes because originally in my notes I put, I'm not doing that. Well, that's somewhat rebellious. Um, I think a better way to put it is, um, I don't want to do that. Let, can we talk about this? But that's not an issue for Saul. God tells him to do this, and apparently the Jews, the Hebrews, had known about this for centuries. Now is the time to make things right. Um, Saul doesn't have a problem with that. He kills the people, except the king. He kills the bad stuff, but keeps the, the, the choice animals alive. That is the disobedience. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. I find myself deeply moved by Samuel's being troubled for Saul. Saul had basically pushed him out of position. He was judge and people were like, no, we want a king. One might be tempted to say, I told you, you should have stuck with me as judge. But no, Samuel is deeply troubled. He cries out to the Lord all night. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone over down to Gilgal. And here we begin, we already know he disobeyed God, but now we begin to look at causes, things that tie into the disobedience. Uh, For some reason, he decided that he was worthy of a monument. This is the first in the history of the Jews. Up to this point, every monument that has been built, usually of stone, has been to honor God. As in, when we began this series, Ebenezer, the rock of help. For some reason, Saul has it in his mind that he won the victory and he should be honored. There should be a monument in his name. We should know something is wrong. So Samuel tracks him down. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Really? Do you not remember God's instructions? But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? I think there's real sarcasm here. It's like, yeah, I I think I hear something. You you obeyed God? What are these noises from animals that I hear? And again, we know that Saul has done wrong because he blames somebody else. Verse 15, Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. In other words, yeah, we kind of obeyed. Uh, We killed the people, but we saved this for a good purpose. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission. Here's the command, saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord. 
Saul said, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. And again, now he blames others, but this is with a religious slant. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Here we find a principle that I think we first come in contact with in, at Jericho. The idea of something being totally devoted to God. In Joshua chapter 6, we are told the story of how they captured Jericho. That for six days, they march around the city once each day. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are devoted to the Lord. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living, every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. That is to say, this is, as troubling as it is for us, this is an, an, an act of worship, of dedication. This all belongs to God, which makes Achan's sin, when he keeps some of it, all the worse, because he is actually stolen uh, from God, the altar, the things that belong to God. This is what Saul and his men were to do to the Amalekites. Instead, they're like, yeah, that's a good idea. But you know what would be better? Is if we got the good animals and we sacrificed them on altars to God. Wouldn't that be a more effective form of worship? God has already said how he is to be worshipped, how he is to be honored. He is, he's paying back the Amalekites for what they did. And Saul and his soldiers decide that they have a better idea. And then we come to a passage that may be very familiar to some of you. Verse number 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord he has rejected you as king. Look look at all these animals we've sacrificed to God this is great we're we're worshiping God. Yeah something better than sacrifice is doing what God tells you to do obeying the Lord. And a failure to do so is rebellion. He refused to do what God told him to do. I don't think in a million years that Saul would see it this way. I I think for him, he had just come up with a better plan. He doesn't mean to dishonor God. He just thinks he knows better. And isn't that how most of us get into trouble? Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And now what do you do? You, You point the finger at someone else. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. By the way, this, is, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Fortunately, the serpent can't blame anyone. But it's a human tendency. When we do wrong, we point the finger at somebody else. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Is this a confession? 
Is this an admission of guilt or is it really a rationalization for his actions? I would argue that Saul is more concerned with forgiveness than he is with confession. Something we need to take to heart. When we confess our sins to God, are we truly confessing uh, or are we more concerned with the forgiveness? Would we be willing to say to God, I confess the wrong I did, even if you will not forgive me. I want to admit that what I did was wrong. Look, if you would, at verse 25. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Um, It continues, but Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. I think this is the key here. It's all about, he wants to look good. I mean, what happens if Samuel walks off and people are like, what happened? So now Samuel, in fact, goes with him and Saul worships the Lord. And then Samuel does something. Well, he finishes the job. Verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him confidently thinking, surely the bitterness of death has passed. I'm going to make it through this day. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord grieved that he had made king, Saul king over Israel. As I said at the beginning, I was somewhat reluctant to, to preach on these passages because there's, I think, the danger of making application incorrectly. We need to understand that what Saul did that was wrong was his disobedience. The other matters are symptoms. Okay? They're attitudes, they're actions that may have led to the disobedience. Um, his impatience, his fear, thinking that he knew better than God did. We need to own up to the reality that we are flawed beings. It is God who is working in our lives to bring us to maturity. But we are going to mess up. I think one of the difficult things for me in going through this passage is I find myself more like Saul than I would care to admit. But we can rest in the reality of Ebenezer. Thus far has the Lord helped us. And as we saw a barren woman, Hannah, and then Eli's wicked sons, Samuel coming on the scene. What happens when the Philistines defeat them and take the ark? When the ark is returned? When the ark is put aside? And all of these, if you wish, for lack of a better word, crazy things, God is still at work. 
And God's purposes in our lives are not diminished. They are not frustrated. They are not thwarted by our disobedience. But we are to be obedient. By the way, it was because of Saul's disobedience that it opened the door for another man to lead Israel. He shows up in the next chapter, and that's David. So, if we make the application today, I would say we are to obey God. And you're like, okay, in what are we to obey God? I think that's sort of a disingenuous question, because I think we know. But let me just start at the beginning. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. We are to love God enough to be content. And we are to love our neighbor enough not to covet. It's a good place to start. And by God's grace, may we seek to be obedient. Maybe it's just me. But obedience is a word that I normally associate with children, not with adults. Is that the case with you? When you say this, this being is obedient, I tend to think a child. I don't think of an adult. And somehow I think when we become adults, obedience is sort of, we think, can be left behind. And again, we're more like Saul than we care to admit. We think we know better than God. No. Love the Lord your God enough to be content and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor enough not to covet. And by God's grace, may we be people of obedience. Let's pray together. Father, oftentimes when we read these stories of people in the Old Testament, the thought may pop into our minds, well, I would never do that. I, I, I would obey God. I would do what I was told. But the reality is, if we look at our lives the past week, perhaps the past day, the past hours, we have not always been obedient as we should be. On our own, we cannot be. We need your spirit who lives within us. We need your grace to guide us in the path of obedience as you seek to bring us to a place of maturity. There's something about us that we think we know better than you. And we think when we've reached a particular age, yeah, we're not children anymore. We don't need to be obedient. But we will always be your children. You will always be our father. As we read in the prayer of confession, you are the potter, we are the clay. We are to obey you. I pray that as a congregation, as we read through the Bible in this coming year, may we be reminded from time to time of the things you've called us to do. The areas in which we are to be obedient. And rather than trusting in our own wisdom, look to you. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name.